This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with the author, Catherine Eban, her recently published work, Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom. Ms. Eban, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Ms. Eban's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, today approximately 9 in 10 prescriptions are filled via generics, but because of their low price, they account for just over 20% of U.S. prescription drug spending. One estimate put 218 generic drug use savings at $265 billion. Lower prices in turn lead to improved adherence to drug treatment regimens. Despite these benefits, the safety of generics has plagued providers and patients ostensibly since they came under FDA regulatory oversight and approval under the 1984 Hatch-Waxman Act. Listeners may recall I interviewed co-author Paul Weinberg concerning his related work, Blood on Their Hands, How Greedy Companies in Ep Bureaucracy and Bad Science Killed Thousands of Hemophiliacs in 2017, and Rosemary Gibson this past December concerning her related work, China Rx, exposing the risk of America's dependence on China for medicine. With me to discuss her latest work concerning the U.S. drug supply, Bottle of Lies, is again Catherine Eban. So with that as background introduction, um, Catherine, this book is largely about, uh, is largely an account of Dinesh, and it's, is it Thakur? Dinesh Tucker. Dinesh Tucker wasn't even close. Dinesh Tucker, <laughs> the whistleblower uh, that beginning in 2005 exposed pervasive fraud at the India-based generic manufacturer Ranbaxy. Can you briefly describe or provide an overview of Ranbaxy or its behavior? Absolutely. So, you know, the book, uh, among the characters it follows... Uh, it follows Dinesh Tucker, who was a young engineer who worked for Bristol-Myers Squibb in New Jersey. Uh, and he was um, uh, originally an Indian citizen. He was recruited by Rambaxi to come and really oversee and manage all of the data in their uh, worldwide portfolio. Uh, and he hadn't been there very long when a boss of his who was the research and development head for the company uh, told him he was concerned about the quality of the data that Rambaxi was submitting to regulators worldwide in order to gain approval for their drugs. Uh, and there were some indications that there, some of the, the data may have been fraudulent. So we asked Dinesh to look into it. Dinesh recruited his team to do a review of all of the dossiers the company had submitted to regulators and figure out was there uh, data to support the claims made in those dossiers. Uh, and basically what Dinesh uncovered was the company's dark secret, which it, it had fabricated data for these drug applications around the world. Ultimately, uh, Dinesh put his findings into a PowerPoint that was shown to the board of directors, um, which said that uh, 
over 200 drug products in more than 40 countries had been filed with data that was invented, just fabricated, falsified, manipulated, um, basically in pursuit of, you know, uh, business. Uh, and ultimately, Dinesh was forced out of the company, and he became a whistleblower. He approached the FDA with his findings, uh, and the FDA launched an investigation. So, you know, m much of the, the book is the story of this cat and mouse um, investigation into Rambaxi between FDA regulators, FDA criminal investigators, Dinesh, his lawyer, the company officials. Uh, but, you know, what really prompted me to, um, to pursue the book was the question of whether Rambaxi was just an outlier or the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. You know, was this how the industry worked? And I should say that, you know, Rambaxi pleaded guilty to seven fel felonies in 2013. Uh, I had done a big article about that, but I undertook, you know, the book project. Uh, my reporting specifically for the book started right after that to try to figure out what was going on inside the industry. Yes, and your book, uh, My Congratulations, is extremely uh, detailed in, in this uh, eight-year. He, mm -hmm. he began... Um, from my notes, he was forced out. Evidently, the company alleged he was viewing pornography at work. Of course, that was contrived. Yeah. Uh, he left in April of 05. He first contacted the F FDA that August, and mm -hmm. the settlement was not till uh, May of 13. Before yeah. we get into uh, this, I do have a question about the settlement per se, mm -hmm. but per your last comment about was it just rang Baxi or was this behavior common? Um, your your conclusion is that it's not only common in generics and manufacturers in India, but elsewhere, including uh, in the U.S. But you use this word, and I'm I know I'll embarrass myself again, so maybe I'll just spell it: J U G A A D. Ah, yes. Which you Jugad. say helps explain uh, Rambaxi's behavior, or it's 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 a mindset um, the company used. Uh, to forward its business interests. Can you explain, and first perhaps, perhaps pronounce that word, and, and how, is that, how is that defined? Sure. So the word is jugad, and I first heard about that word after I published a big Fortune magazine piece about Rambaxi in 2013. Uh, and, you know, someone wrote into the website and said, uh, well, you know, it's because of jugad. So I thought, well, what is that? Mm -hmm. um, and it, what jugad is... It's a, it's a Hindi phrase which basically describes the effort to, or the ability to achieve the desired ends by the shortest means possible. So it's sort of the art of the shortcut. Um, now in India, that's a really valued skill because there are a lot of systems that don't work well. You know, there's a tremendous amount of corruption. The average person you know, it's incredibly difficult to navigate sort of the everyday systems of life, whether it's, you know, getting a driver's license or a movie ticket. Um, but Jugad is something that's sort of prized in corporate culture in India. 
And on the one hand, it can be positive because it can mean innovation, but it also has a darker connotation, you know, which is these sort of uh, just kind of just but the shortest means possible to get to the desired goal, which means overlooking regulations and requirements and laws in order to get where you want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as I was reporting in India for this book, I heard a lot about that word. Okay, thank you. You, just one sentence, sums this up in your volume, quote-unquote, Rambaxi's manufacturing standards boil down to whatever it could get away with, mm-hmm. uh, unquote. I will note, relative to whether this is more widespread, and this is a paragraph from page 230, and this actually mm-hmm. has to do with uh, manufacturing in China, because mm-hmm. you do discuss other examples uh, in your volume. Um, mm-hmm. Assuming the culprits were in China, how could the U.S. hold them accountable? The FDA was disorganized, weak-kneed agency with limited powers. It faced a foreign country with little effective regulation and a government with every incentive to suppress bad news. How are America's investigators supposed to track down and prosecute those responsible in a decade-long investigation that ensued between the U.S. against China and the FDA against Congress? No one has yet been held accountable. Nevertheless, the FDA's webpage, and this concerns China, Baxter, and Hepburn, still states Mm -hmm. that the agency is, quote-unquote, using, continuing to aggressively investigate the situation. So this Mm -hmm. is, again, uh, to emphasize or ever emphasize that this is not uncommon in the generic manufacturing industry. Let me go to a summary point here. You certainly leave the impression, at least with me in reading the volume, uh, that Rambaxi was, and the word that occurred to me, recalcitrant. And in fact, you don't say this, but I certainly get the impression that they were essentially a criminal organization. In (laughs) fact, I'll just note that um, two points. One, you're probably well aware in 17, 47 AGs accused 18 generics for mm-hmm. colluding on price. And just two months ago, yeah. 44 states sued 20 drug uh, manufacturing, alleging the same regarding more than 100 generics. And then just to pile on, um, you're probably well aware of fines um, uh, the farm industry has incurred for marketing abuses. In fact, in the last 10 years, I counted the, uh, uh, the 12 or, uh, or 13 highest amounts, and they literally add up to one or rather a billion per fine or $13 billion. So the industry uh, Mm -hmm. has not uh, exhibited any sort of ultra boy behavior. So that leads me to the question, is it possible, considering the approach uh, these companies take, in combination with the limitations on FDA funding and ability to uh, inspect on a regular basis overseas, particularly if and when they have to send a... um, advance notice, uh, is it all possible for the industry uh, to be adequately policed? You know, that is a great question. Um, I think that there was a, you know, there was a big uh, generic drug scandal in the 1980s when the industry first launched. Mm -hmm. And uh, it sort of resembled what's happening now, which is that there were a lot of companies that were Uh, falsifying data uh, in their applications in order to gain approvals. Now, the difference between then and now is those companies were in the U.S. And once the scandal broke, FDA got new powers to fight fraud, and there were certain um, 
kind of safety measures put in place, like conducting pre-approval inspections, that kind of thing, and you know, punitive powers the FDA had to place them under um, uh, an application integrity policy, it's called, mm -hmm. if they found fraud. Um, and I think for a while, those measures worked not perfectly, but well. And now fast forward, here we are in 2019, the majority of our generic drugs are made overseas. So, you know, to your question, how is the FDA going to police an industry that is operating 7,000 miles away uh, when it is choosing to pre-announce its inspections, giving these companies weeks, if not months, of mm -hmm. advance notice? You know, right now, the system of regulation we have is, to me, it's absolutely obvious that it is not working. Um, you know, drugs with toxic impurities, uh, metallic and glass fragments, um, drugs that are found to not be bioequivalent after the fact, after release, those are reaching American patients. So, you know, the system is not working right now. Also, the FDA's um, overseas offices in India and China those are dramatically understaffed because the FDA hasn't adequately figured out, uh, you know, incentives and support for people willing to move there. Um, and this has just really left our drug supply in a very fragile state. Uh, you know, not to mention which we've got, you know, be partly because of quality lapses, we have very serious drug shortages which makes the FDA even more reluctant to restrict the flow of drugs into the U.S. And I'll, right? I'll get so, to the shortage uh, issue mm -hmm. uh, question, but a uh, good point. Let me just note quickly, you do uh, state that between 2004 and 2009, overseas facilities required inspection increased from 500 to 3,000, mm -hmm. and that um, over 15 years, pharma ingredients by weight the U.S. imported from China grew mm -hmm. by 1,700 percent, and then relative to India, you do note towards the end of the volume, India does have a central drug standard control organization, which you characterize by this quotation, we always give them the chance to improve, which is to say that uh, they're not, let's just say, uh, helping to reinforce uh, what the FDA is trying uh, to accomplish. Let me, let me ask you about um, the ultimate... Um, and then we'll move on from Renbaxi. But uh, again, in 2013, there's resolution in a Maryland court. There's a $500 million fine, as you noted. Um, and although the FDA initially identified the um, a $3 billion amount, uh, and there was no one criminally prosecuted uh, in this settlement, uh, what's your assessment uh, of the of the resolution to this, how adequate or not. And I do want to ask about, if you can include the Japanese firm you note, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it as well, <laughs> they buy Rambaxi during this process, eventually owning the company or have a majority uh, share in their, in their stock. Although you mentioned them, and of course they sue Rambaxi, um, mm -hmm. but it, it just seemed that they were passive observers. I don't. I was left with no impression that they as owners uh, successfully policed or did anything to clean up uh, their manufacturing. 
But in combination, the settlement and the Japanese ownership, um, what, what's, your, what's your assessment? Well, you know, first of all, <laughs> a lot of people who worked on the Rambaxi case recognized its limits because no individuals were held accountable. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had a CEO who was directly implicated in fraud. And, you know, I have email, I obtained 20,000 confidential FDA documents, including, you know, emails back and forth between FDA lawyers and prosecutors who were basically like, you know, let's make a case against these executives and hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. That never happened. What happened instead was that, you know, after Rambaxi pleaded guilty and there was sort of a diaspora at the company. And so a lot of the executives and officials who had spent years uh, involved in this data manipulation scam went to other companies in the, age, in the industry. You know, so there was right. sort of a displacement of crime um, rather than a real punishment of it. At least that's how some people I've spoken to look at it. So, you know, was the penalty, were the penalties adequate in this case? No, probably not. Um, you know, Daiichi, thank you. I mean, you know, this is a very interesting to me, a very interesting story culturally. It's sort of like a Godzilla movie in reverse. You know, you have this pretty, you know, this top Japanese company which was really remarkably naive uh, in its approach to this Indian company. There was sort of smoke coming out of every window at Rembaxi. You know, there had been a search warrant served at the New Jersey headquarters. There was a DOJ investigation. I mean, all of this was known, but the, as I, you know, I document in the book, uh, Malvinder Singh, who was then the CEO of Rembaxi, uh, suppressed information about this smoking gun PowerPoint document, mm -hmm. which showed clearly showed a widespread culture of fraud inside the company. Um, you know, had Daiichi Sankyo um, gotten that document, uh, they would not have bought Rambaxi. So they were, in fact, fooled. Uh, were they naive? Yes. And were they fooled? Yes. Uh, you know, and I think once they got once they understood once it became clear what was actually going on inside Rambaxi mm -hmm. they wanted out of that company i mean you know they were staring at a situation that really could not be fixed um and today the company doesn't actually exist anymore right right you do mention other than uh the smoking powerpoint there are the smoking refrigerators um but well let's move on to the fda okay. um, yeah so the hero here is Peter Baker, yeah. or sadly, he's, he's one of the uh, investigators for the FDA who does these excruciatingly careful, methodical inspections that reveal all these um, problems. Of course, sadly, right. at the end, we learned, uh, not surprisingly, I suppose, he's diagnosed with PTSD and moves to another country. Um, right. But let's, let's look at uh, the FDA. Now, again, there are limitations relative funding and geography. Um, but in some ways, you get the sense uh, they could be their own worst enemy. Uh, uh, for example, your assessment of Janet Woodcock and her view of the, the value of 
of inspections, etc. But what's your overall assessment? And let's leave aside the limitations again of geography and funding, um, those things that they can control. What's your overall assessment of FDA's uh, work through this on balance? Uh, of course, Peter is the exception and uh, state of play yeah. for them currently. So, you know, after reading, spending years and reading through sort of 20,000 mm-hmm. FDA emails uh, as they try to come to grips with the kind of fraud that's occurring in these manufacturing plants, you know, the sense is a kind of deep confusion about mission. Is their mission to... Uh, help bring these companies into compliance so that they can continue to make low-cost drugs for Americans? Uh, Or is their mission to, you know, protect American patients by cracking down on these companies and stopping their drugs at the border? Mm -hmm. Um, And you just see that over and over and over again. There's, (laughs) There's this actually... A, a footnote in the book that talks about this inspection that the FDA did in China, where this company was aware that the inspection was not going well, and the manager uh, of the plant took the FDA investigators hostage in the conference room mm-hmm. and wouldn't let them out, literal hostages for hours, called the local police, accused them of not being who they said they were, um, and, you know, and basically stopping the inspection until finally, you know, the Chinese FDA came in and freed our inspectors. So then this email debate ensues between FDA officials. Well, do you think he was specifically refusing an inspection or not? Like, maybe that wasn't a specific refusal. Like, can we restrict the drugs from coming into the country if he didn't? specifically refused the inspection, even though he took our investigators hostage? I mean, you know, so that's the kind of debate, this sort of strained debate, you know, looking at these sort of regulations on the head of a pin and missing the entire picture of what's happening, you know, and and really patients becoming victims in all of that sure because these flawed drug products are coming into our country the um you get the sense uh there's the one episode i forget the country and the inspector he's in a some sort of uh, transportation vehicle and somebody jumps in and queries him in what sounds yeah. certainly be a very threatening manner you're wondering if these inspectors should be armed when they go <laughs> uh to these plants relative to the con- conflict um you do note, and I did think this was a very interesting aside um, discussion, this is the too big to fail. At one point, Rambaxi's making AIDS drugs for extremely affordable uh, prices for use in Florida during the epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a conflict between whether to be heavy-handed with these manufacturers or can they be because at the same time they're providing, leaving aside the quality, um, mm-hmm. You do have a very uh, sad uh, line, uh, I guess, uttered by a, a Rambaxi official, something about uh, imperfect uh, generic production um, for Africans and mm. something about, well, they're only, uh, I, I have it here in my notes, they're only blacks dying or something uh, 
yeah. pretty harsh. Um, but I'm assuming that is part of it, that they're having to thread the needle between putting these companies out of business. At the same time, they're providing, again, presumably, uh, affordable drugs for epidemics. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, there is this sort of fundamental conflict. It's like, are the drugs good enough, and do we have enough of them? Well, do we want enough of them if they're not good enough? Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is this sort of central question about um, the FDA's mission. Is it to facilitate the flow of cheap drugs, and what if the drugs are substandard, and then they have to restrict drugs, um, and, you know... Do they have the proper authority to do that? So there's all of this kind of uh, confusion, you know, and the companies, what was clear to me also, the companies are absolutely capitalizing on that confusion. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, one example is, uh, and I know we were going to talk about drug shortages right. later, but, you know, but the companies have figured out that even if they're found to not be complying with regulations, if they may, are making a drug that is in shortage, right. the FDA will not restrict that. Even, even with plants that have sort of failing GMP systems, if they're making a drug in shortage, the FDA will most likely let it into the country, as it has done repeatedly. So that is looked almost as like an insurance policy for noncompliant plants. Mm-hmm. In fact, so let's get to that. At, at uh, I remember the page exactly, 408, quote-unquote, the FDA was getting played. Fraudulent yeah. manufacturers could protect their bottom line by manufacturing drugs in short supply because they would not be restricted. Restricted mm -hmm. whether made with dubious methods or not, quote-unquote. And then Peter Baker, quote-unquote, it's a win-lose situation and the patients are the losers. Right. Um, relative uh, to... I do have to say, since we're on the AIDS, and maybe we can make quick work of this, but it's, it, it is interesting, the, the appearance of Bill Clinton in all this, um, <laughs> in that he was after PEPFARB under W or George W. Bush, funding for uh, uh, international AIDS uh, medication, funding, uh, uh, affording inter uh, medications internationally. Um, you note that um, the work of the Clinton Foundation that helped uh, um, um, Rambaxi's efforts, and in fact, you have a line here, something about uh, they tried to um, uh, do as much as they could with the former president. My question is, to mm -hmm. what extent was the Clinton Foundation doing its own due diligence? Well, you know, there was basically, so just to quickly review, you know, what the Clinton Foundation did was um, as Indian companies emerged as the sort of heroes of the AIDS crisis and being willing to drop their prices for the AIDS cocktail to a dollar a day, the Clinton Foundation stepped in and sort of aggregated the demand. Let's get all the governments together to buy. Mm -hmm. um, and that gave the Indian companies enough volume that they agreed to drug drop their prices even further to 38 cents a day. Right. Um, and then ensued this debate within the U.S. government over how to safeguard the quality of these drugs. If we were going to be using U.S. taxpayer dollars to send to buy Indian generics and send them to African AIDS patients, 
um, you know, we wanted some guarantee that we weren't buying counterfeit medicine. And I think in this instance, uh, the Clinton Foundation was somewhat naive because they basically said, well, you know, pre-qualification from the World Health Organization, they can do some review and make sure everything's fine. You know, and what they did not understand was the extent of fraud inside these companies and the huge market that this AIDS purchases, you know, gave them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it gave them entree to the West. It gave them, you know, a huge line of business. Uh, but, you know, as is clear from all of the internal documentation inside Rambaxi, I mean, these companies were well-versed on, you know, how to fool these NGOs um, when it came to quality. Right. You know, and-, and I think to this day, I mean, based on some of the the, you know, sort of skeptical responses. I mean, I think the NGOs are not looking squarely at this issue. Well, let, let, let's, let's, I'm going to get further to that point in a second. Just okay. to note on the AIDS, the, the quote-unquote Rambaxi exec comment was, quote-unquote, who cares, it's just blacks uh, dying. Yeah. Um, let's go to, um, since I did mention... Um, uh, I did mention earlier uh, the AG efforts at the state level. Uh, recently, you're probably well aware, the House Energy and Commerce Committee sent letters mm-hmm. to both the FDA and GAO mm-hmm. regarding adequacy of foreign and domestic inspections. I'm hearing uh, that there actually may be hearings yep. uh, in the Congress, certainly after the six-week break or not before. Uh, what's your sense of... Uh, since this is since this problem not only persists but may actually be becoming more endemic and and larger, what's your sense of the attention? This is finally maybe um, you know the line about the Congress is they either do nothing or they overreact. Uh, where are they on the spectrum here? You know, I they're 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 the good news is they're not doing nothing, mm-hmm. um, and. I would say they've underreacted for a long time. And now I think with the publication of my book and other, you know, information that's coming out, uh, they are reacting. And I think we do need hearings. I mean, you know, I think we have to really look squarely, given how endemic the fraud is in these overseas manufacturing plants. We really need to look squarely at the question of whether American patients are being adequately protected by the FDA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's let's further that uh, by way of one of your concluding epilogue comments. You conclude by noting several physicians, uh, amongst others, Cleveland Clinic's uh, Harry Lever, who you the cardiologist who you know, his mm-hmm. experience or learning curve, uh, um, that he, his work actually helped further, to some extent, expose Rambaxme and other generic manufacturers' fraudulent behavior. Um, he and others, in your epilogue, you state, are uh, very cautious of prescribing generics. And in fact, you note mm-hmm. that Cleveland Clinic, in some instances, has a separate standalone formulary because they have no trust in the purity of, of these drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So my question is, and usually these interviews, formulaically I ask, what can the consumer do, or the patient? So by reading uh, Lever's response and the same response by others um, whom you profile in this book, meaning that's their conclusion, uh, the implication is um, that the public or the consumer, the patient, should be similarly very cautious, although that's very difficult if you didn't go to medical school. So um, mm-hmm. how, how would you refine or what, what would you say to the um, consumer, again, patient, in how they should understand and use or what level of caution or paranoia in yeah. using or consuming a generic? So let me say this, which is since the book has come out, you know, I have been just, my inbox is overflowing with emails from concerned patients. You know, what can they do to protect themselves? How do they know their drugs are effective? So because of that, I have put together uh, on my website a guide to investigating your own drugs. Um, And it's, you know, it's a kind of um, trust but verify situation Mm -hmm. where um, especially for patients who are taking a maintenance drug, they need, you know, most times they don't even look at who the manufacturer is. I mean, we go to pharmacies and we get switched from manufacturer to manufacturer, right? From a brand to a generic, between generic versions. Most of the time we have no idea who's making the drug. We just don't Mm -hmm. pay attention. Part of the reason we don't pay attention is because the FDA has told us it's all equivalent. It's all interchangeable. Right. Um, but what I'm saying is patients need to figure out who made the drug, what's the track record of that company? Does the drug appear to be working? Is it not working? Do you have strange side effects or do mm-hmm. you not? Is it fine? If it's fine, then you want to stay on it. Make sure you keep getting the same manufacturer. If you're having problems... Then you need to do a little more research. Well, what other manufacturers make this drug? Is there what's called an authorized generic, which is basically a generic made in close cooperation with the brand name company? Um, You know, so there's all those kinds of questions that, you know, unfortunately we never thought about it before, but I think we need to. Mm -hmm. And uh, amongst others, of course, you do profile the... um when Lipitor, the high cholesterol drug, went off patent, mm-hmm. and um, that's particularly concerning when you consider how many Americans are on a, a yeah. cholesterol-lowering medication. Let me circle back as a final question to uh, uh, Dinesh uh, Takor. So he persists. He tries to uh, forward his concern through the Indian courts. Uh, the Indian Supreme Court, you say, basically dismisses his efforts out of hand. Mm-hmm. saying he does not have standing. Uh, he did receive, however, as a whistleblower under um, the False Claims Act, which you profile goes back to the Civil War in Lincoln. Um, mm-hmm. He does receive a healthy uh, 10%. Um, mm-hmm. Regardless, uh, what's, what's his current uh, work or effort? Well, I mean... I'll say this about Dinesh Tucker, you know, how do you know that a whistleblower is the real deal and not just in it for the money? Right. Well, his his percentage of the settlement, he got $48 million, and he has used some of those resources to, as you say, 
sue India Mm -hmm. over its drug safety. He is a drug activist and advocate, you know, and he has been maligned by the Indian industry. Right. Um, He's sort of persona non grata, and he has persisted. And, you know, he has a very interesting blog post. He has brought other legal actions against uh, against India for not properly regulating its drug supply. So, you know, he cares passionately about this issue, and he hasn't stopped. You know, for him, it's way beyond Rambaxi. Um, so, you know, he's a very, I think he's a, he's a remarkable individual. No, absolutely. That's clearly the impression you're left, uh, his work with the people's pharmacy and other efforts, Mm. despite, you know, the personal hardship, uh, much discussion you have about how he tried to maintain his, his, uh, family life, of course, almost impossible, but extremely Mm -hmm. uh, stressful. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know. I, I could say in some ways he was undercompensated uh, for his effort. <laughs> yeah. But with that, um, uh, Catherine, sadly, we're at, our, we're at our time boundary. I'll just uh, leave your opportunity to make um, a final comment and say uh, uh, whatever you'd like in conclusion here. Um, well, you know, I would say that, that the book to me is, you know, it's not just a, a, about uh, – not just a book about the quality of our medicine. Mm -hmm. It's really a book about integrity in a globalized world. And I was very interested in that issue as I was reporting and writing it. You know, I mean, what makes, you know, what turns somebody into a Dinesh Thakur who goes and, you know, risks, risks it all, risks his life to try to bring to justice a rogue corporation that's making terrible quality medicine for patients around the world that he's never met. You know, and I think that the characters in this book who are fighting against fraud um, are really, you know, they're fighting for integrity in a globalized world. You know, they're, they're appalled. Uh, you know, to them, good manufacturing practices are not just, you know, some words on a piece of paper being pushed by the FDA. I mean, these are real, you know, principles of quality that, you know, are supposed to undergird global manufacturing. And, um, you know, so people like Peter Baker and Dinesh are deeply motivated by that. Um, You know, and I just became very interested in that as well. I thought it was a, you know, a compelling place for a, you know, a narrative nonfiction about the whole fight to lift up the global drug supply. Absolutely. And as I mentioned, uh, relative to the blood on their hands, of course, uh, that debacle, HIV-tainted blood products caused the death of thousands of, tens of thousands of hemophiliacs. Um, The heparin case, of course, led to hundreds of deaths. Uh, So there are very... um, severe or the most severe consequences uh, when these drugs are not appropriately uh, Mm -hmm. manufactured. So with that, Catherine, I'm I'm genuinely uh, grateful for your time here, and I wish you every success with this book and your future writing. And maybe down the road we can uh, have maybe a better, uh, more, uh, more encouraging conversation. 
Thank you so much. I really, uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.